Welcome to Hollywood 2.0. This is Peter Katz. Me and my co-host Rich Silverman are going to speak to Kevin Franco about his background creating immersive experiences for brands and books. From designing packaging that uh, incorporated all five senses, if you will, to um, we developed an ARG or an ARG about uh, three years ago, and uh, just last summer we introduced a uh, a novel that we told um, in real time uh, in transmedia. So that's kind of a, the quick and dirty. What is the combination of skill sets and experience that lends itself to your career? Um, well, I own a, a di- uh, Franco Media, I guess, first and foremost, is a digital company. So we do um, web app development, we do branding, we do a lot of uh, what you might call storytelling in the marketing world. And uh, so that really helped provide a base uh, from a technological standpoint, as well as from uh, the understanding of, uh, you know, telling the story of a brand, if you will. So I was speaking at a conference and explaining how we approached marketing uh, from a, a storyteller's perspective and using multiple medias to communicate uh, these brands and their messages. And that's when Jeff Buick, the, uh, the thriller author, was, was sitting in the audience and heard us describing how we approached our marketing and this, this immersion that we created for customers and uh, uh, consumers. So he had you know, light bulbs going off in, in his mind as to what could be done with one of his thriller novels. And that's really the genesis of how we got started in telling the, the story of one child. Was he already planning on doing uh, One Child as a kind of transmedia novel before he saw you at the conference, or did seeing you in the conference kind of spark the idea to expand the, the novel just beyond the, the written word? Well, I think he left his New York publisher uh, months before seeing me with the intention of doing something different, and, and I don't think he really knew what that was. And then, uh, obviously, as a, a thriller writer or any writer in 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 the, that description, you're very, very uh, creative, and your mind can, you know, pull together stories out of, you know, sometimes something really, um, you know, kind of ordinary. What's the author's background? Okay, so so Jeff Bio is uh, he's a thriller writer. So thriller is his genre. He's published five uh, best-selling books through Dorchester Press in New York. Um, he's got nineteen unpublished. Uh, books, and because um, he's he's fairly prolific as a writer, and he's he's able to take very complex stories uh, and and various plots and characters and weave them together into a you know a climax uh, of an ending that produces a good thriller. Um, so when he left his New York house, he was looking to do something different, and he wasn't really sure what that was until. You know, hearing us talk about the immersion, and I think it was mostly the the alternate reality game and how we brought audience into the fold in you know solving puzzles and and telling a story to to get them through to the end of the the, the narrative that we developed for it. And I think that when he saw that, he he started putting you know two and two together and really saw a lot of potential in how transmedia can really tell 
um, a thriller, but not so much tell it, but having the audience and the readers experience the the book in in a way that you can explore the story world. Transmedia experiences and args may be exotic now, but do you think they may be the new normal? Well, I tell you what's driving it is the manufacturers of devices are making it easier and easier to consume multimedia content. And tablets are, I think, becoming the norm. I think they're going to replace desktops and, and laptops, mo- mostly laptops, I would say. But the audience or these consumers that have these devices are going to expect more from storytellers. Um, and by storytellers, I mean authors. Um, I think that they're going to demand, because their devices are capable of more, they're going to demand more from those stories. So, you know, having visual elements in it, having uh, video elements, having, you know, uh, web linking, things like that. We incorporated that into One Child. And, you know, fast forward a year or two from now, and it's going to look very crude and very, um, you know, elementary compared to what could be possible in, in even a year from now. But have, I, you, have you started planning uh, a second novel with Jeff and uh, uh, some, approaching the transmedia elements in, in a different way from what you learned from One Child? Yes, and you know, when I look back at doing One Child, we didn't know we were doing transmedia until we were two weeks in and Alison Norrington wrote a blog about what we were doing and called it transmedia. And we thought that was kind of cool that there was a name for what we were doing because um, we were just we just thought it would be neat to tell a story this way. We didn't know that it fit within a, a genre or a, a, a way of doing things. But to answer the question with the second novel, we're, we're actually releasing four. Three books are going to be um, non-transmedia. They're just going to be a digital release. But the, the fourth novel, Through and Thrill, is going to be uh, transmedia story and we've already started seeding some of the characters online um, one of the characters in the story is a, a mid-level company IT manager and um, you know he's got a real bone to pick with the the users and the, the people in his company and he feels that the users are a security risk and uh, these end users are kind of the bane of his existence so he starts a blog called endlosers.com and so we've already begun that blog and we're gonna, we've got an IT uh, person and an actor that we're using to um, push content through that blog so the blog started but it's really not uh, where it's at yet it's very uh, crude looking and it's, it's actually better designed than I want it to be at this point and we haven't really promoted the fact that it's out there um, but what we really want the, the site to do is evolve with the character. So if an IT manager started a blog, it's going to look like a blogger template site. And maybe in six months, that character, you know, decides he wants to up, a, up the ante a bit on his blog and starts putting some Google ads in, or maybe has a friend design a little logo for him to put in the top. Um, so that the blog itself will evolve visually as well as um, narratively as the character evolves. And the story that we're releasing is set in April of 2013. So as the blog matures and gains an audience and, and people following it, uh, not until that 
April of 2013 will people realize that this is actually part of a bigger narrative and a bigger story. How do you test that user experience? Well, that's an interesting question. I think it's going to be harder and harder to do as we break out more pieces of the story and tell it on multiple areas. We are working on uh, an engine that you'll be able to log in and um, basically track your experience. And at the end of that, if you follow through the narrative, you can purchase the book and it'll uh, capture your experiences and give you an e-book that is based on your experiences. So that's something that we're working on in the, on the, on the tech side of things to, to try and encapsulate and provide each user with a bespoke ebook at the end of the, the journey. Um, but in our first book, we released it in real time online and that allowed us to really track where people were going and what they were doing because we did it as a web-based uh, story. So we had a, a browser-based e-reader that we developed with a uh, soundtrack and uh, everything was kind of encapsulated within that environment and we were able to track it much better than we will say going forward for people that are experiencing blogs and things that are maybe not connected um, uh, you know physically. What do you know about the user that you didn't know before you started this project? Yeah absolutely and I think that's a, a really good question and one of the things um, even at the Story World Conference there's some discussion about creating hoaxes and telling stories and we we want people to know it's a story but we don't want to go so far as to create an artificial uh, experience for them so we want to make sure that it's as real as we can make it without kind of tricking people so that they feel like they've been been tricked and in our last story we had some of the characters were online uh, in uh, they had Facebook profiles and one of the characters was shot in uh, one of the sequences of events and uh, there was public that befriended this character, maybe not even knowing that he's part of a story, and kind of poured their heart out on his Facebook wall. Um, so how do we, you know, how do you deal with that and, and how does that person feel when they find out it's not a real person that they've, you know, poured their heart out to? So we've, we've addressed things like that by uh, creating some common language on all of the uh, characters' profiles. We, we include um, not really a disclaimer, but say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a character in a larger story, and you can find, find out more about it here with a link to our website that describes our, our process. But uh, learning that uh, lesson, uh, understanding the... the audience is something that we, as we rolled it out on a live basis, we adapted and changed our approach. Uh, we threw out our forum and moved the discussion to Facebook because that's where our audience was. That was a big learning piece. Um, we're still debating whether or not that was the right thing to do. It, it, at the time, um, we felt it was and it did engage some discussion, but it's not our discussion. It's owned by Facebook now. Um, right, so you've got to be careful where you're putting things, and I think that's something that we are very aware of. But at the same time, we wanted to move the discussion into an area where the, the readers already knew the system; they didn't have to relearn something and create an avatar and, you know, go into threads and things to that nature. 
very very much different than an alternate reality game where you've got more of a, a tech savvy audience. Right. Uh, one of the the challenges to me it seems with using real social media websites like Facebook. Like you said, one of your characters died, and if you're following the story as it's being serialized in real time, that's all well and good. But what if I'm coming to the story later? Like I'm reading One Child now, yeah. And if say I go to the Facebook page and see that 300 pages before I get to that point in the story. Yeah, that's a, a bit of a spoiler alert, hey? Eh? <laughs> exactly. That, that will be edited out. <laughs> I, I, and I'm, I'm putting you on the spot here, but how, how how do we as transmedia storytellers address that kind of thing? Do we have to get away from using Facebook, these real platforms, and create sort of an, an embedded fictional social network within the novel itself? So that as the, the, this fictional, say, Facebook updates as you're reading the novel and not in real time on the real Facebook. Well, I, it's a very good point, a very valid one, and it's something that we... Um, if you go through the story now and you're clicking on links, we've, we've date stamped the, um, the blog. So if you click through a link, it takes you to that point in time in the blog. You don't go to the end of the blog or the most recent posting. Um, and so there's certain things we can do. And I think moving forward in the engine that we're building is we will um, be able to capture, say, if a character is tweeting uh, we will be able to capture that tweet and insert it into that narrative at that point in time so people don't have to leave the story necessarily or their reader to, um, you know, go look at Twitter in real life. They can see the feed or the tweet that happened as it, uh, uh, at the point in time in the story. So you simulate a reality. That's right. The more your audience is fragmented going to various social networks, the less control you have of them. Um, yes, uh, absolutely. Anytime in the news story, we've got a character that is looking for evidence of a book from World War II. So does he comb, you know, photographs online and, and uh, Facebook? Um, how does he find, how does he discover that photograph that is the evidence of where this book might be? Um, so what this character has done is he's started a, a site, a website, that's more of a Tumblr, asking people to post photos from World War II. So as we collect content on that site, we will insert the, the photo that we want to be discovered into that mix. But by us posting that and uh, curating those photos ourselves, we own the content, right? So we, it allows us to do whatever we need to do with that content to tell our story and to ensure that five years from now or ten years from now that the story is still relevant and that we still own that uh, that content so that it doesn't you know if we had the photo discoverable on Facebook for instance in two years Facebook may change and render that photo gallery obsolete and now the story doesn't make sense because you can't find it online right by us controlling those assets it allows us to make sure that the story is relevant and still an experience, you know, five years down the road. And by keeping your audience in one area, they avoid a lot of distractions because there's so much noise on the internet. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you know what happens. You jump onto Twitter and you see a link and you click on it and next thing you know you're looking at cat videos on YouTube, right? <laughs> so, 
Yes, I, I have my own cat videos going live right now. If you, if you hear me screaming in pain, it's because there's a cat stabbing me in the stomach. So okay. I, I don't really know much about the EPUB format, but is all this that you're talking about, is that possible within the EPUB format itself? Or are you talking about having to develop uh, a, a different type of e-publishing you know, protocol to do all this? Um, no, we would operate within the EPUB format, and EPUB 3 is uh, now out, and um, I think recognized by, um, by the readers that are, that are out there. The, the challenge with the EPUB is once it's created, it's locked in time, right? So it's not variable. Like in, if you created a book as an app, you could always feed live information through that um, because it acts uh, as a connection to the Internet at all times. Whereas an EPUB, it's once you've made the file, it's a, the file is the file. So it's you're kind of locked into time. But what we're hoping to do is by working within that file structure, is when you hit uh, buy, I want to buy that book, that it captures all of the experience from your point of entry, whether that's through the blog or through a Twitter space or wherever. Uh, we want to gather all of your experience and merge it with the narrative of the book, so that when you um, buy it, your book is different than anybody else's because it's based on your experiences. So, um, but it would be working within the current um, uh, confines of that format. So why uh, make the decision then to use EPUB rather than uh, an app? Is that a distribution-based decision because it's uh, easier to market your book through EPUB and the online, various online ebook distributors? Yeah, that's that's the biggest reason. Uh, books as apps, I mean, for children's books, there's certainly reasons to go with an app. Um, you know, having the connectivity to the web and being able to draw in information is a very big plus. But when you're looking for a book, you don't go to the app store. You go to the bookstore. And Apple, uh, to use Apple as an example, they've got an enhanced ebook section, which is very... Um, uh, helpful in finding stories like ours, although you know, amongst uh, 2,000 enhanced ebooks, we may be the only full transmedia offering in that mix. And I think that's a real challenge for all transmedia um, writers or authors or producers: is that how does the public find these stories? I know with alternate reality games, you've got Argnet, you've got Unfiction, you've got kind of a, a gathering place where you can launch into and learn about these different experiences. But in the transmedia side, I'm not sure that that has been covered yet. How do you facilitate conversation around the text? I know for the Huffington Post, some of the articles are much shorter than the actual comment section that could go on for a very long time. It could breathe new life into the work. Yeah, I think that's... Uh, um, a, a very valid point and there's there's some tools out there that allow for social reading so you can put annotations into the browser-based reader uh, for others to read and, and comment on and the the danger in that is uh, obviously spoilers but uh, you get uh, maybe people jumping ahead to the discussion versus to the narrative um, and that was actually one of the positives of moving our discussion to Facebook is when they finish their chapter, they can click the button, go into the Facebook chat, and talk about it. But it wasn't contained within the uh, confines of the reader, per se.
I'm uh, also interested in the team involved in, in putting this book together. Did, did Jeff Buick write and develop all the transmedia content, or did you have additional writers and staff on hand to help out with the transmedia components and the production of the transmedia components? Well, it was certainly a collaborative effort. Um, Jeff wrote the narrative of One Child. He created the book first. Then he met with our team, and our team went through it with him to discover, you know, how do we break this out? Because initially we were going to build an alternate reality game around the story. And after reading the story and really analyzing who the audience was, we determined that it probably wasn't the best fit. The, the narrative really just didn't fit a an alternate reality game. So we began looking at, you know, that's how we moved into this transmedia space is we didn't really know what we were doing. We just thought, hey, this would be really cool to, you know, do this. And what if we filmed this scene? And, uh, you know, there's a reason for the filming of the scene because the, in the book, the scene is filmed and shared on YouTube. So, and I don't want to spoil it for you, Rich, because I know you're reading it. But, uh, um, so having that component be real is a real asset to that experience because it's a it's in the book and it says that it's real and if you go online you discover that it is real how do you introduce transmedia to the masses that's yeah i think that's a challenge for all of us um and it's it's awareness of the category in general and I spoke to Jeff Gomez in New York in February about that very concept, is that we can do all these cool uh, transmedia projects and everything, but the, the, the audience or the, the consumers, they don't know to ask for it. They don't say, hey, um, I really want an immersive experience that puts me into a live story world. Um, you know, they're discovering it, you know, certainly online you've got, um, you know, Lost and Heroes and you've got all these different things happening through TV shows um, and uh, Mad Men. Uh, there's a lot of examples of that, but there's no real way to really, um, or, or there hasn't been a way, I should say, uh, to let people know that this is there. It's, it's more left to discovery. Is it the role of the press to introduce this to the public? Um you know, it, it couldn't hurt. <laughs> I have heard that augmented reality has been mismarketed and the press didn't understand it. Do you feel transmedia has the same challenges? Um, well, I, th I think so, because it's not something that you could just sit and explain in, in a few um, minutes, right? It, it needs to either be experienced or you, you need to sit down for a half an hour and really um, to, to really get the concept. When, when we did our alternate reality game, we actually had a reporter um, working with us over the course of eight or ten weeks. So he really got it because he was involved in, in um, how we planned it, how we told the story, and how we advanced the, um, the narrative and the challenges week in, week out. And the story that they produced was uh, very, very good. I was really... Um, when we did our alternate reality game, and then uh, we had a, a reporter working with us every week uh, that was following what we were doing, planning the challenges, and uh, advancing our narrative week in, week out. And their coverage was really in-depth and well done because they were able to experience it firsthand. Um, and that really helped to explain it to the, the layman or the, the average person reading that magazine. Um, transmedia is, again, it's, you almost need to experience it to understand it. And I think a lot of the 
Um, you know, I hate to uh, paint reporters all with the same brush, um, but they're not all given that opportunity to have that kind of in-depth, embedded uh, experience. Um, so, you know, I know that there's uh, Porter Anderson has a real good grasp on on the transmedia space, um, and um, I think uh, there's there's a few people that are pushing out. Um, uh, information on transmedia that have a good grasp on how to communicate it and and that's important I think you know the the audience it, it's going to take a lot of time for the audience to really um, begin to ask for it unless everything goes that way and everything just inherently becomes transmedia I, I suspect uh, to some degree that that the audience will increasingly desire what we're calling transmedia as the the tablets and e-readers proliferate and come down in price yeah i think my first experience and now that i know what the category is or, or what transmedia is but my first experience without knowing what it was was going to the sopranos website and reading the rap sheets on all of the characters and i just thought that was the coolest thing ever because you got so much more information about those characters that was maybe never explained or, or talked about within the narrative of the, the, the television uh, shows or the, the, the episodes. But online you could learn so much more about each character and I just thought that was uh, really fascinating. And, um, you know, and that I think is, will that be expected by the audience going forward? You know, as you're watching a movie, do you grab your tablet and bring up IMDb and find out who's in that and where else they were. Um, I think a lot of people watch TV with tablets or laptops in their laps. Um, so to have that kind of and, rich uh, engagement with the audience. The, the e-readers are now becoming more tablet-like, and they're not just presenting text on the screen, and these are coming way down in price. I just think that as this happens and the tablets become under 200 bucks, 150 bucks, and that they offer web browsing and, and multimedia content, People are going to be reading novels, new novels, on these tablets and just wondering, well, why, why can't this be enhanced in any way since the tablet natively has that functional capacity? So I think yeah. we are going to see a growing audience demand. It's not going to happen overnight, but just as, as the tablets become more ubiquitous, uh, people are just going, are, are going to want this content to be multimedia. It just makes sense because the tablets themselves have that functionality. So I think people are going to yeah. slowly start to expect it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It would be interesting when a reviewer reviews a film or a TV show or a book, they also reviewed the interactive experience. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's a really interesting uh, uh, suggestion. I think that that should be the mission of any uh, studio or producer that's doing this type of work is to get the press to analyze the um, the asset or the the production as a whole. You know, when we launched our book, we we rented a theater and we had one of the actor that played the um, uh, embedded reporter. We had him do a live broadcast from the center stage, and we wrote new material for him. And um, so he came out and did his last update post uh, story. And it was really cool. And then we, you know, we had a few scenes that we actually acted out as part of the a continuation of the, the narrative. And we had zero 
reporters show up. We had one reporter from L.A., and she arrived after the production because her plane was late. Um, so we, we put on this great show for about 500 people. Uh, the, the company that was selling the books for us said they've never sold that many books at any um, uh, uh, book launch uh, in their experience. And uh, so by all accounts, other than from a press standpoint, it was a huge success. It just needs recognition, possibly even with award shows. Yeah, I, you know how much work goes into uh, these. Uh, it's insane the amount of hours that we spent as we were rolling it out live, um, like 20-hour days and just uh, it's nonstop. It's so consuming and to not recognize that at the end is uh, <laughs> and it's almost criminal. So we had, um, I think... Probably, I don't know the exact number, but I would say between 60 and 100 people working on our project from uh, start to finish. When you include the, the film crews, the audio crews, the um, you know, soundtrack, the, the web team, the, you know, it was a large amount of people that came together to make uh, One Child a, a success. Can you talk a little bit about your company and Thrill? Okay, so yeah, um, and Thrill was started two years ago when, when uh, Jeff Buick heard me speak, he, he, um, he really saw some possibilities in storytelling, and, and rather than just jump into it by himself, he formed a team of people um, to create a business around it, and that's how we, uh, we created Enthrill Entertainment, and our mandate is to, enth- uh, what is it, <laughs> Enthrill, no, entertain, enlighten, and engage. So, you know, entertain, we want to tell a good story first and foremost. Uh, enlighten, we want to bring to light some, maybe some topical uh, issues that are out there that really aren't being handled by the media in any depth. Uh, so in the case of One Child, we talk about uh, high-frequency trading uh, on Wall Street, which has come to light um, in a lot of ways since the release of the book. Not because of the book, obviously, but just it was an issue that we could spend a little more time in a novel explaining than in a 800-word uh, story. Uh, and then uh, engage. So we want to create an engagement with our audience and um, you know get them immersed in the story, be a part of that story world. We had a lot of cust- uh, readers say that they they couldn't tell the difference between what was happening in real life and what was happening in the story as we were releasing it out on a, on a daily basis. What type of people are your readers? Um, I, I don't have access to the numbers right on the screen right now, but we it was primarily female audience, uh, yeah. over 40, and it was spread out. Um, all We had a high concentration in our market, obviously, because uh, you know we're local and we had local people that knew us and were following us. Um, but we had readers all over the world, uh, primarily North America and mostly U.S. Uh, and they, thriller readers are typically uh, middle-aged women. Many women are fan fiction writers. It seems like a lot of them are drawn to this kind of material. Yeah, I th- we had a lot. Because we released it over the summertime, we actually had a, a fair amount of educators reading our uh, story. And the comments back were the way that we broke it out in a daily release, a serial, um, as well as with the interactive components, they said it was very suitable for uh, young adults, uh, young adult males. 
and felt that it would be a really good learning platform and a reading platform for um, you know uh, school age um, males, you know teenage boys. What was it about um, women that you think responded to this initially? Well, they typically are drawn into thrillers and that uh, you know mass pulp fiction, um, you know, an easy read that you can sit down on the beach and read in three hours. I, I can't read any book in three hours. I, I just, I'm not a fast reader, but, um, you know, people that are what you define as readers can sit down and shoot through a 300 page novel in, in a few hours. And, um, that market is typically the middle-aged women. And, uh, you know, so that's, that's where we started with and, uh, what we started marketing to. We did develop some fringe, uh, markets, uh, but uh, that is, you know, number one audience for us. Because you had a, a bunch of educators reading the book, have you guys considered adding sort of supplemental educational material to each chapter that they could then discuss with their classes and students? Um, we, yeah, we had a lot of suggestions coming back saying that uh, it would be a very useful reading or uh, learning tool. But we really didn't uh, take it beyond that because, you know, we really want to focus on just telling our, our, our thriller stories. But I think that, um, you know, if there's, there's a lot of e-learning companies and if they uh, saw what we were doing, I think that they could probably incorporate a lot of the uh, learnings that we, uh, or uh, methods that we implemented and use that in their, um, in their dissemination of their materials to the students. Um, but it, it, it's really not a focus for us, but I, I think somebody could probably make some money on it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, is Enthrill looking to build a stable of other writers, or is it uh, primarily a platform for interactive books from, from Jeff Buick? Uh, well, we, we are. We want to stay within the thriller genre just because that's, um, you know... Sure, that's the name of the company. There is an opportunity, I think, to work with uh, authors, uh, outside authors, as we move forward. Um, you know, so far we've done the, the book with Jeff and we've got four more to release with Jeff. But I think once that happens, our, our capacity will expand to, to allow us to handle more, more authors as well. So we've had a lot of submissions without asking for submissions, uh, which is, uh, I don't know, that's probably normal. Uh, but as a new publisher, that was something that, you know, we really uh, were kind of taken aback with. Do you have brand partners as additional revenue stream? Um, yeah, well, that's something that we're exploring over the next um, uh, the next twelve months. Here, uh, we're also looking at um, a lot more product placement. So what we're doing is we're analyzing uh, the story that we have, the audience that will be there, and seeing what types of brands fit with the character. Um, you know, obviously, if the if the um, if the main character uses an iPhone, that might say or suggest things about her personality that you that are implied by using that device. Um, and there's a lot of you know brands that can imply and uh, uh, tell a little bit about the character without having to go into great detail. So it, it aids in the storytelling, but also provides us with opportunities where we can maybe uh, talk to those brands and see how we integrate them into the story and into the um, the online experience without it being a big um, commercial. Just another way to support your project. 
Yes, and I think that that's one of the opportunities with Transmedia is I think there's opportunity for multiple um, revenue streams. So we've got the blog, endlosers.com. Would that character start selling T-shirts or coffee mugs on his site? Maybe, right? Um, you know, as we develop that character further and get a better understanding for him, maybe that's how he funds his, uh, his uh, gambling addiction or something. You know, um, so there could be ways in the story to justify, you know, the selling of merchandise. And the, the merchandise doesn't have to say anything about the book. It could be all about that blog. And it depends on the traction that we're getting there. What do you think advertisers are some of the earliest champions of transmedia content? <laughs> um, well, I, I, I think I might have said this. Uh, I had a talk uh, the week before Story World at uh, Books and Browsers conference. And when things are easy to understand, and you can tell a, a, a brand or a, a manufacturer that your logo is going to be seen across multiple platforms and you know thousands of people are going to see it or whatever that case may be, they can understand that very easily. Um, and they can see the potential. When you start talking about pushing a narrative through multiple channels, that's when you start to lose um, people, but if you, if you tell some advertisers that their logo is going to appear multiple places or it, what the reach is and, and whatever that terminology is, um, it's, it's easy to understand. It's easy to, um, to take part in that. So um, I think that from a branding perspective, it makes a lot of sense to, you know, kind of everybody's looking for a different way to push their materials out there and have it look differently. Um, and and be noticed. So transmedia is kind of the newest um, advertising vehicle, if you will. Uh, I hate to say it that way, but uh, it, it is true. And um, I think it's easy for people to understand. And you know, money like water follows the path of least resistance, right? So when they see an opportunity to do something that's new and different, then people will jump on it and 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 give it a try. There's been some good um, efforts in that space and good uh, promotional pieces, and it's not a bad thing. I don't see any transmedia as being a bad thing. It's not the way I approach my transmedia projects, but the more transmedia uh, promotional transmedia that happens, that opens up the category for people looking for it in other ways too. So from that standpoint, I'm, I'm cool with it. And I should point out when we started doing the one child that we were, our intent was to use the transmedia as a promotional tool. And as we started getting into it, we started throwing out the things that didn't make sense or didn't fit the characters and didn't fit the plot and didn't fit the story. And we, we started paring it down to something that made sense for the story versus something that was just purely promotional. And uh, I think in that process, We've kind of um, defined ourselves as how we want to participate in the storytelling. And that's in, in the real immersive experience versus um, any kind of promotional type um, transmedia. Your website says that your company, Franco Media, offers practical jokes and that seriously, <laughs> we can punk your boss. Has anybody taken you up on this? We have done several pranks for some very large companies. Um, so yes, we've done, um, we've done some practical jokes. 
<laughs> uh, we developed one for a very large company where for um, April Fool's Day, where employees, when they signed in their computer, it made them select a parking spot around the building. And this is maybe a building of about 600 people. And um, the only parking spot available that was available for them to select was the spot furthest away from the building. But it took them several hundred clicks to find an available spot. And, uh, and then at the end, of course, it said uh, April Fool's Day. So that was kind of a fun one because we integrated it with, through their IT department into their login systems on their uh, intranet. Um, but it was, it was fairly elaborate. It wasn't for everybody. Uh, it wasn't for everybody's budget, but it was certainly uh, a fun thing to do. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hollywood 2.0. Check me out at petercats.net, K-A-T-Z. And everything you need to know about me, you can find at my personal website, richsilverman.com. See you there.